You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. John 12, 1-8. Let me read this first from the book of Exodus, kind of laying an introduction here. The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 12, 1 through 14, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take from it the sheep or from the goats. Down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover in the book of Exodus is really the first time, really the impetus in the book, uh, in the Bible as a whole, where we see redemption or atonement start to unfold. John's gospel in particular, there are echoes of Exodus all over John's gospel, including today. We see up to this point, and granted we've been in John's gospel for a while, we took a break for a while, so we kind of have to jog our memory a little bit, but we recall that Jesus is the Lamb of God. We see that instantly in the first chapter, behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is, by John chapter 3, recognized as the one and only Son given up for the sins of the world. He is the one in whose blood would be poured out or whose blood would be poured out for the sins of many. He is the son of man who will die and be lifted up. Jesus, in John's gospel, very clearly is the fulfillment of the Passover established so long ago in the time of Moses in the story of the Exodus. The Exodus was but just a foreshadow, a foretaste of a greater Passover, a greater deliverance, a greater blood, a greater payment that would come. And so today, we hear another echo of the Passover in the story of Jesus' anointing in Bethany as we are to give our all for the one who has given his all for us. That we are to give our all for the one who has given his all for us. We've come upon the final week of Jesus' life in his ministry, that passion week. That intense week, that intensely focused week, usually we see around the time of Easter. With Easter year-round, it's like the Hallmark Channel, just not Christmas. Easter in the summer as well. It's the final week that the disciples... And even us as the readers get to see who Jesus is a little bit more clearly. And so we begin to see Jesus, first of all, in this first part of verse 1, 
as our Passover lamb. It says six days before the Passover. Let me stop there. It doesn't say Jesus is the Passover lamb. John isn't saying that explicitly here. Right? He's not giving us that sort of commentary. But if we take the book in context as a whole, we understand what's going on. We understand the direction that the Bible is taking us. And so for us to just like quickly jump past this and move on, I think would cause us to miss some very important and worshipful uh, things about Christ. Remember again, and I already mentioned this, John 1, 29, the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist wasn't confused. The disciples now, looking hindsight, are not confused. Jesus is the Lamb of God. God from eternity chose that Jesus would be the Lamb slain for his people. This is a conversation I have with my kids. Hey, Dad, why would God allow this to happen? Why does he allow evil to happen? Why does he allow these things to happen? Great questions, and the questions that will stick with you for the rest of your life. But I also counter the question with, don't you think it's just as scandalous to think that God, before he created all things, also chose to die? Meaning, God created, knowing that his creation would rebel against him, and even still, he chose to create, knowing that he would come and die for their sins. That's... What turns the question upside down and makes it worshipful. Jesus, before the foundation of the world, was considered the lamb slain. And this is something we need to constantly be reminded of. He does this so that we, the firstborn, might be saved. God didn't give up His son didn't pass over his son, but he gave up his son and poured out all his wrath upon him so that we wouldn't have to absorb any of it. And so this beautiful picture and reminder is here six days, six days before Jesus would die on the cross. This reminder, Jesus would become the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the people. And by looking upon Jesus in faith, believers would receive eternal life, not destruction. And what we're going to see here, six days before his death, Jesus is not going to have a pity party. He's not going to be carrying out the woe is me, life is rough, I'm a victim here. He's not going to be regretting his life. He's not going to throw in the towel and call it quits. Rather, he comes into this scene ready to celebrate what has just happened. And that is him raising Lazarus from the dead. They are coming here today in this scene to celebrate Lazarus's life, newly resurrected life. And Jesus doesn't come in trying to be the the Debbie Downer of the party. But rather, he comes and joins in. He's in the mix of good company. So I want you just on the front end here, I want to challenge you to rejoice. I want to challenge you to worship, to celebrate what Christ has done. There are so many reasons to be frustrated in life right now. 
I'll hit on some of those things a little bit later on. But there are so many reasons to be angry or frustrated. But there is even more reason to rejoice. Even more reason to celebrate and to worship. If you had six more days to live, (laughs) what would those six days look like? What would today look like knowing six days from now you were going to die? Would you be thankful? Would you be throwing a pity party? Would you even acknowledge God or would you just make the last six days all about you and everything that you can accomplish and your little bucket list? Would your final days be in service to the Lord or would it be self-absorbed? Think for a moment. Jesus pulls double duty here. He pulls double duty. He is both the judge and the lamb. The judge and the lamb. He is the perfect spotless lamb that is mentioned in Exodus. The perfect spotless lamb whose perfect blood was placed on the door frame of our souls so that we would not have to absorb his righteous wrath. And that's where his judgment comes in. It's his wrath that passes over you. And instead of receiving his wrath, you receive his eternal joy and forgiveness and grace and mercy. His blood covers you eternally. You can never out his grace or his blood. Meaning there's nothing that can touch your life. I mean, sure, this world could take your life. It could rob you of everything. But at the end of the day, you are the Lord's purchased by his blood. You are his and he is yours. There's reason to rejoice, reason to worship, reason to celebrate him this morning. And so Jesus, he first loved us. He chose to give his all for us, which is why we're here in this scene. And so in turn, we celebrate that we are alive because of him. In verses 1 and 2, alive because of Jesus. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. This is the, the hometown of Mary, Martha, Lazarus. This is where we saw in the chapter prior where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And as it says in the text, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so just a reminder here, I mean, if you think about the setting, everybody is astonished at what had taken place. This man who had died is now alive. He's breathing, he's functioning. Nobody had ever seen anything like this before. Lazarus, the the relative of Martha and Mary, good friend, the one that Jesus loves as well, had passed away. Jesus knew that Lazarus was sick, and he could have come and healed Lazarus prior to his death, but he doesn't. He holds off, he waits, and he waits on purpose so that Lazarus would die for the very purpose that the glory of God would be known among the people and that they would see that Jesus was the one who was sent from the Father. Jesus wanted everyone to give God the glory. It's not like Jesus enjoyed that Lazarus died. We saw that when Jesus approached the tomb of his, one of his best friends, Lazarus, he began to weep. This wasn't something he just casually, eh, no big deal. No, this is something that was real. 
This is the human nature of Jesus weeping in sorrow and grief of his close friend. But he wanted the people to see that he was from God. And ultimately, in this beautiful conversation between Jesus and Martha, for them to see that he is the resurrection and the life. Not that there would just be a resurrection in the final day. There would be a resurrection in the final day. But that by believing in him, you would enter into that resurrection and into that life. That though you may die this side of heaven, you are still alive in Christ Jesus. And that is the thesis, the aim of John's gospel. That you and I would believe and have life in his name. So they come together, verse 2, they gave a dinner for him, that is Lazarus, there in Bethany. Lazarus' life was the reason for the dinner. And so in retelling the story in scripture, Lazarus' life ultimately doesn't become the central focus of this entire narrative. Right? The disciples are writing this down, inspired by the Spirit, carried along, writing this. John is writing this. And as amazing as it is that Lazarus is raised from the dead, his resurrection from the dead doesn't become the central focal point of this story. In this scene, Martha is serving. Lazarus was also one of those reclining with Jesus at the table. And this scene is, you have a table in the middle of the room, low to the ground. Everybody is laying head towards the table, reclining on one arm, most likely the left arm, with the feet outside the table. For those of you in the room who hate feet, you're thankful for this, that the feet are far away from the table. And the way that this is set up, it is this picture of a feast, a feast that is taking place. And it's most likely a packed house, if you will, a lot of guests, a lot of people wanting to see what has taken place. They heard the rumors of Lazarus being alive, so they want to see. I mean, can you imagine the questions that would come in that room? Hey, Lazarus, what was it like to be dead, man? Like, did it hurt? Was it scary? You know, what did you see? I mean, seriously, come on, you got to let me know, man. And even more importantly, are you afraid to die again? Because this kind of stinks for you, right? You already died once, and now you've got to do it twice. If there was a time to capture the attention of the room and really start a bestseller, now was the time for Lazarus to do it. You know, not 90 minutes in heaven, but days in heaven. Telling all the wonders of the heavenlies. But that's not even part of the story. That's not even a grand part of it. I suspect that there was wonderful discussion. John doesn't bring us in onto that. But I have no doubt there was more joy for Lazarus Lazarus reclining next to Jesus than perhaps him coming, being dead and then coming back to life. Jesus, after all, is the centerpiece of our hope. He is the treasure of heaven. He is the reason that we would even be alive. He is the one that angels are longing to look. Right? They are looking to him. I'm sure maybe when he got to heaven, the angels were like, Hey, yeah, come here. Let's watch this Jesus guy. It's all about Christ. Jesus, God in the flesh. Lazarus, 
reclining right next to him. A feast, a service, reclining at the table, fellowship, laughter, wonder, thanksgiving, all of those things become a response due to the life that Jesus brought to this one man, Lazarus. How much joy should there be with a church full of men and women who have been truly brought from death to life in the eternal perspective? Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. That eternal salvation that you and I know about, that you and I have experienced, Lazarus has not yet received. Neither have any of the disciples or anyone in this room. And yet there's much reason to rejoice. So then, therefore, how much more reason do we have to rejoice in the life that we now have been given by faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, Lazarus was a focal point, but at the end of the day, it's going to come back to Jesus. Lazarus doesn't want it all to be about him, and it is all about Christ. But at the same time, Jesus is there celebrating. He's not robbing the attention of the party. right? He's there celebrating what has gone on. So think about the summer ahead. What reason do you have to barbecue this summer? When you pull out the grill, cook some good food, have friends over, have friends over, drink good drinks, have good conversations. What is the reason behind it? What is the focal point? What is it that you're celebrating? What reasons do you have to have late nights with the boys or with the ladies? Are we a people that feasts, that parties, that gives great reason to celebrate what Christ has done for us? Or are our feasts, if you will, our parties more about us? Do we ever just sit around and think about the wonder of how Jesus would even save sinners like you and me? Granted, we're just kind of diving into the unknown. There is no understanding. There is no like full-on conversation here written out in the pages of Scripture saying, here's what everything that was said that was said. But I imagine these conversations, these wonders were taking place. And what are those wonders like among us as believers? Are we constantly carried off and talking about things that angels are really bored with? Are we talking about things that matter eternally? What Christ has done for us. Leaning in, getting our nasty feet away from the middle, right? Leaning into one another and talking about these things. Feasting about these things. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, any of those who were in that audience. And understand as well, just prior to this, there is a... A warning sent out by the Sanhedrin. Anyone who's hanging out with Jesus, you need to report him in. Turn him in. And here Jesus is creeping in closer to Jerusalem. A big event. Not something isolated or in private. Very open. Very public. Unashamed. Without fear. Full of courage. Everybody's hanging there. And Jesus is right in the middle of it. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of his work to bring you to life. Sometimes we believe Jesus is ashamed of us. Oh, look at you. You sinned again, you little sinner. That's how we think Jesus looks at us. 
just constantly disappointed in us. But no, we have been brought to life because he brought us to life. He called us forth from the grave and we are alive because of him and he is not ashamed of us. The spirit that he has given to us has changed us. And so he is not afraid to recline with us in that celebration. Church, I think I just need to say very simply, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. It's a very simple and profound truth. He wants to be with you. He's not ashamed of you. He's honored to be a guest at the celebration of your new life. Yes, we all understand. It's not about you. It's about him. But he's not ashamed to call you brother. Jesus is the everything of our salvation. But we can't forget that we're not just props in the course of salvation. We're not just puppets, if you will. We are truly loved image bearers of God, made just a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. We have value and worth. We are sinners, no doubt. And without his aid, without his spirit, without him at all, we would never know him. We would never love him. We would never praise him. But we are not just pieces of garbage and trash. We are valued creation. And so being alive in Jesus is worship worthy. Worship worthy. And part of our worshipful response to Jesus is us just giving it our all. Just like he gave his all for us, we give it all for him. We see that in verse 3. Giving it all for Jesus. And so in the verses prior, you had Martha serving. She's the big servant. And now we have Mary here. Mary, therefore, the sister of Lazarus. Because everyone was there for Lazarus and him being alive, Mary, therefore, responds. And her response is not towards Lazarus, but towards the one who made Lazarus alive. So it says, verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. She does this in response to what Jesus has done, but even more than that, there's something worshipful here that Mary understands. And so she takes this very heavy and expensive ointment This pure nard, something that would be brought in from India, it's expensive, it's extravagant. It is about a year's worth of wages. That's the value of this ointment. Imagine for just a moment, whatever job you have, whatever amount of money you make in 12 months' time, that's how much this perfume cost, just in correlation, if you will. And so she comes in, And she breaks open this flask and she anoints the feet of Jesus and then wipes his feet with her hair. We see this very same story almost verbatim in the gospel of Matthew and Mark. We see something like it in Luke, but the timing of it seems a little bit confusing. We have Mary Magdalene in in there as well. It's questionable if that's the same Mary 
But if we stay focused here on Matthew and Mark alongside John, what we see is a bigger picture. Not only did Mary anoint the feet of Jesus, but also his head. So there's a full picture of Mary anointing the body of Jesus. And the feet of Jesus seems to be ultimately a place where Mary finds herself. Chapter 11, verse 32. When Jesus comes into town and Lazarus is dead in the grave, Mary pops up and runs to Jesus, falls at his feet. If you were just here, if you were here, Lazarus would not be dead. And so we see again, here she is at the feet of Jesus. And so to anoint the feet is really to take this posture of slave. This position, this posture that is looked down upon in society. Mary does not care what others think of her in this moment. She is down at the feet of Christ. This is a posture of humility and complete devotion and really courage. Courage because as I mentioned, the Sanhedrin gave this warning. Basically turn Jesus in. Don't be found hanging out with him. And not only is she hanging out with him, but she is being closely associated to him in this washing, in this anointing. She would give all of herself to Jesus, not caring what anyone, even the world, thinks. And then she does something that takes it to the next level. A next level of intensity. She unbinds her hair which is something not common for women to do in this sort of setting, unbinds her hair, lets it down, and washes the feet of Jesus with her hair. This is extravagant love, intense devotion, intense humility. She is laying it all down for him. And then John, in his artistic way of writing, says... The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled. Why does John speak of that sort of moment? Right? It's an experiential thing. So now you have to begin to envision, or what would it be like to be in a house where you're smelling a strong, expensive perfume? And everywhere you go, you're just getting a waft of it. You're getting a smell of it. But I think it's probably put there for us to envision the extremity of it, the bravery of it, the extravagance of it, the sacredness of it. Jesus is ultimately being prepared to do something only he can do. This moment is sacred. Like we saw in the Exodus narrative. How the lamb was being prepared for the Passover. So we begin to see this preparation for the Passover. This pure ointment. This pure perfume. I like how James Montgomery Boyce, he he spoke of this. He said, imagine the situation here where you have this ointment, this perfume being poured out. And Mary using her hair to wipe it. So it's all over her hands. It's all over her hair. And chances are she got up to serve alongside Martha as well. And so every time she's working the room, serving and moving about, there's that constant movement of the fragrance 
all over the place. It was following her everywhere. And so it was a constant reminder. The fragrance was in the air. That something very sacred has captured the whole room. And the very memory of the disciples, as they capture this, as they are taking in this fragrance, and then begin to rewrite these stories, they are captured by that memory of fragrance and remembering really that fragrant aroma of Christ, that sacrifice that he gave. Mary gave it all. I mean, she gave up her savings, if you will. A year's worth of wages. Retirement fund, if you, if you could put it that way. Is there anything, church, that you would not give up for the sake of Jesus? Anything you wouldn't sell? Anything you wouldn't give away? Anything, man, you're just going to protect this thing. You can have all this stuff, Jesus, but you can't have this. Are you willing to offer up worship to Jesus that is ultimately sacrificial and costly? Well, I don't have any money. Okay? How does Jesus want you to worship him with your money? Well, I don't own anything. But what about the things you do own? How can you worship him with those things? What about your relationships? Your influence, your leadership? The words that come out of your mouth, the overall stewardship of our lives, how are we giving it all for Jesus? And then I want you to consider how you might sit at the feet of Jesus. We don't have literal, physical Jesus right here in front of us. But we do have him in spirit. We have him In his word. And so we have opportunity every single day. And this was the conviction that Boyce had put on my soul as well. We have opportunity every single day. Anytime we want. To sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him speak to us. To hear about his life. To know him. To worship him. To love him. And maybe if we... Spend as much time reading social media as we would in the Bible, then we might find ourselves more enamored with Him, loving to be at His feet. And to sit at His feet requires some sacrifice. Mary had to have some sort of courage and even sacrifice to do what she did, to drop down before Him. To give him our attention. So what is it that you need to sacrifice and give up so that you actually pursue him and move towards him? We can't just sit around and go, well, I'll just wait till Jesus does this, X, Y, and Z. He's already done it. He's already accomplished it. Just move towards him. Give him your attention. Meditate upon his word. Love him. Worship him in all aspects of your life. Is there anything in life that you're pursuing more than Jesus? And what is it? We need to repent of it. I say we because I'm not excluded from this. There are things in my life that I pursue more than Christ at times. We're in this together. Mary reminds us Jesus is worth it all. And so I want to challenge you to make your worship known in spheres 
and times of discomfort. I mentioned earlier, I, I kind of give some examples of this. We're in June. June is Pride Month. It's everywhere. I'm not even on social media, and I know it's all over social media. It is everywhere. And so if you're going to stand against participation in something like Pride Month, worldly ideologies, as we all should, there also needs to be a clear reason why. Your boss, your friends on social media, your next door neighbors, your lost family members and friends all need to know it that what you're doing is because you love and worship Jesus. There are non-Christians, lost people who are against Pride Month, lost people who are against CRT and woke ideologies, lost people who are against abortion, moral things that we also are against. But there needs to be even a clearer distinction between us and those lost people. And it is Christ. I was really thankful the other night. Sage invited several guys over to uh, hang out on his back deck. And if you're one of those guys who didn't get invited, just talk to Sage. I'm not sure why he didn't invite you. I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. That was not nice. I heard several men talk that night. And I loved because I'm just absorbed in this sort of life ministry, all this stuff. And so I don't get to hear all the things out on the streets all the time. But there are companies pushing certain woke agendas and even trainings. And and so ultimately, I just want to say I feel for you. And I have been meditating a lot in the last several days about that and just talking and wondering, what do, what do we do? And I want to say to you, stand for what is right and what is true according to the word of God. Do not conform or give in to the ways of the world. Okay? Be okay to stand against the grain of culture and society. But as you do, as you do, I want you to make your worship of Jesus to be the unmistakable reason why. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it becomes difficult. That means if your boss wants to know why you're not willing to do these things, why you won't conform, why you won't bow down to these ideologies, you have a responsibility in Christ to tell them the truth of the gospel. To tell them without hesitation, to tell them without fear, to tell them with full courage who it is you love and worship and believe in. Do those things. We are the fragrant aroma of Christ. Those who are being passed from life to life, not death to death. The world has not hesitated in evangelizing you, in evangelizing me, in evangelizing our children. Let us open our mouths about Christ. Let's not beat the world down. Let's not make people feel dumb and stupid. But let us share Christ with them. Understand, the world thinks the way that it does because its heart is wicked and sinful and dark. They don't know Christ. 
But you do. You have a living hope. And there should be like Mary, a fragrance, an aroma that is coming from you that smells like Christ. That carries with it that worship and love of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you in that way. And I want to tell you this. Because you might be like, well that's easy for you to say. Because you're the pastor. You don't have that sort of risk. Well sure I do. If you lose your job. We lose money at the church. I might lose my job. It's not about the money y'all. I've got your back. Our pastors have your back. Our church has your back. Trust in Christ. Be faithful in him. And I think even in those moments when it's really difficult to do that, knowing like your your heart is racing, man, I might lose my job and and I might not be able to put food on the table. Just understand that the father sees you. He cares for you. We've got you. Don't be fearful. And so giving it all for Jesus is a worthy and worshipful endeavor. But be aware, the world will scoff, they will mock, and they will try to rob and take it from Jesus. Let's see in verses 4 through 8, this taking it all from Jesus. Jesus gives it all, we worship him with our all, and then the world comes in and tries to take it from him. Verse 4 But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was the accountant of the disciples. And you can see, you can sense this hindsight frustration. There's no real record here in real time that the disciples were picking up on what Judas was about to do. Or had this forethought, if you will. This is all hindsight looking back, almost maybe in shock. I can't believe this guy did this. And so you can feel that frustration. And without apology, Judas is identified as a thief. He is a thief. And think about this. Boyce mentions this as well. That Judas would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is about equal to uh, 120 denarii. Mary gave Jesus an offering worth two and a half times that amount. Judas, for two and a half times less, was willing to give up the Son of Man. It's astonishing. He would so easily give in to the fear of the Sanhedrin. So easily be enticed at the thought of monetary wealth for the sake of gaining the whole world and what? Losing his entire life. All in all, Judas was not willing to keep the money, uh, was not willing to keep the money for himself. He was ultimately wanting to just rob Jesus of his due worship. Jesus knew of this. He's God in the flesh. But he kept the conversation away from Judas's ultimate heart problem. And upon the good news. In verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He doesn't get into, hey, Judas, you really need to check your heart. You really need to repent. Hey, we all know you're just trying to steal the money. We all know you're just trying to rob me of my worship. He doesn't get into any of that. He says, leave her alone. Leave Mary alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. There's some difficulty understanding the translation of what Jesus says here to keep it for the day of my burial. Because the question is, did Mary use all the perfume? I mean, when you look at John and Matthew and Mark, it seems like maybe she used the whole thing. Or was Mary actually aware of what Jesus was about to do and she held some back for the time of his burial? Maybe she had some insight here. Or is Jesus just highlighting the significance of Mary's act as ultimately a preparation for his death to come? So whether or not Mary knew ahead of time, we don't know. John doesn't reveal that more explicitly. But what we do know is that it seems like from verse 3 and 5, it seems like the whole pound of perfume was used. There's, the, there's kind of the language that would give that off. Matthew 26 verse 7 says, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Verse 12 and 26 says, In pouring this ointment on my body, and then in Mark 14 verse 3, it says that she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So there's this picture, this imagery that it was broken and it was poured out head to toe. And even some saying in Mark 14, they said indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Whether or not that was just part of the ointment or all of it, we're not 100% sure. And whether or not Mary knew ahead of time, we are also not 100% sure. But what we do know is that time time again, as Jesus was approaching the end of his life, he reminded his disciples over and over that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that he must die, that he must raise from the dead. But over and over again, the disciples weren't getting it. Perhaps Mary got it. We don't know about it. But regardless of that, Jesus understood what she was ultimately doing. It had a divine purpose. And thus, he comes to her defense. Mark and Matthew record this sort of defense. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And in pouring out, she sa- he says in Matthew 26, in pouring out this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. There's agreement that this ointment, this expensive, pure perfume, was poured upon Jesus as a preparation for his death. And he says in verse 8 to Judas, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is not sitting here saying, I don't like the poor. Stop giving to the poor. It's not what he's saying at all. He's also not just outing Judas's heart condition. 
But what he is saying is that I am God in the flesh. There's a small window in the, in the history of time of which God is dwelling among his people in Christ. And soon I will be gone is what he's saying. The poor you will always have with you. And you think that Judas would kind of wake up in that moment and see, oh, my goodness, I'm missing it. Or, uh, you know, followed by repentance. But rather, you see this real-time example of what was preached back in John 10, verse 14. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Judas doesn't seem to hear and understand and know the great shepherd. And we must not be mistaken. Jesus willingly lays down his life for his sheep. No one takes his life from him. It's not as though Jesus is a victim of Judas's betrayal or of the world. Jesus willingly gives his life. Mary, on the other hand, She is a sheep who hears the voice of the one calling of the shepherd and she follows him. She is not concerned about the money and concerned about, you know, it's service to the poor, but she is focused entirely on worship of Jesus. She knows her shepherd. And in fact, it is so extravagant That Mary's act will be part of the gospel proclamation. Both Matthew and Mark record this. It says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's quite a legacy. I want to let you know, worship of Jesus is always something that is going to be well received and protected by the Lord Jesus. Well received and protected. The world can do whatever it wants. Take your money, take your jobs, take your land, take your home, take your life. But it cannot take your worship. That's the one place the world cannot touch you. That's why in most highly persecuted areas of the world, the church is still on fire because the spirit of God is alive. Worship is alive. Even if affliction is strong and heavy. And when I say protected, I do not mean of course that you won't suffer loss. I'm not saying it will be easy, but if, and when you suffer loss or afflicted, Your worship cannot be touched. There are so many infuriating things about the world right now. But you have to remember this as well. That the Lord feels indignation every day. He feels it. He sees it. He knows it. And the day of judgment that is coming is going to prove that to be true. And so I want to caution us. Yes, don't stand, you know, don't stand for evil or wrong things. Stand up for truth and what is right. But don't try to change a broken and fallen world to be righteous. Like you can't do it. 
The world, until Christ returns, is going to be broken and fallen. And he's the one who's ultimately in charge. We are just called to be faithful worshipers and doers and servants. But the outcome is the Lord's. So don't get so angry that you can't change people's minds, that you can't change your boss's minds, you can't change the policies, you can't change certain laws, you can't do those things. Instead, rest in the Lord. Trust in Him. Don't lose sleep. Don't lose sleep because of the increasing evil around you. There's no reason for that. Jesus didn't lose any sleep, perhaps until the night before he died. But even then, he was in prayer. Just be faithful to him. And unlike the world trying to take from Jesus, we take what we have and we turn it back up to him in worship. That's what he calls us to do. In six days time from this scene, there will be a Passover feast. Jesus and the disciples will feast together. And during that time, the fate of Judas will ultimately be disclosed. Listen to what John 13 says. Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel... Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. There's no doubt that's a sad scene. That's kind of a depressing scene. But it does take a hopeful turn. A turn that Mary herself could not articulate. But no doubt, something of which she would have placed her faith. Matthew 26 records the hopeful turn. And this is where we begin to set our mind towards communion this morning, taking of the Lord's Supper together. And so it says in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a beautiful picture here when we get to the last supper of Jesus, the final cup and the whole feast and the whole meal. There's, there's different times throughout the evening that a toast is made. And at the very end of it, there is a final toast, a final blessing of the Lord's supper that is made. And Jesus is saying, I'm not going to do this final toast 
with you until it is done in my Father's kingdom. And so we as the church, we as the body, we as the bride, we come to the table each week. We come and we eat the unleavened bread of the perfect, spotless lamb, the Passover lamb. And we come each week and we drink the wine of the perfect covenant that gives us forgiveness of sins. And so I want you to consider this morning the two elements, the bread representing the body, the wine representing the blood of Christ. And I want you to consider that as you approach the table this morning, that you would be approaching in the same heart posture as Mary, that you would take these elements and turn it back up in worship of him. It's about Christ, the one who gave us his all. So come today, repent of your sin, feast on grace and mercy, drink in forgiveness, and remember him who is anointed for burial. And may your fragrant worship of him be ever present as you come to him this morning. Believer, take time during this time to confess your sin, to repent of sin. Maybe you have wronged a brother or sister in the room. Now is the time to seek them out for forgiveness. If you're being sought out for forgiveness, be quick to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. If you are in Christ and you take these elements in an unworthy manner, you're ultimately just bringing a a heap of condemnation upon yourself. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to the body saying you're free in Christ when really you are not. And for those of you who have not put your faith and trust in Jesus, we are thankful that you are here, but we would ask that you refrain from these elements. Do not take them. They are not for you this morning. But we would call you, we would invite you to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was given for our sins, the one who died, the one who was buried, who resurrected from the grave. And by faith in him alone, you would have life in his name. And maybe that's you. And for the first time, you are believing upon Jesus as Savior. I want you to come directly to me and let me know. And I want to pray with you and celebrate with you. And the last thing we do as an act of worship this morning is that we give of our tithes and our offerings. We take the money that is given here. In response to God and worship, and we steward it for his glory. We use it to make disciples. We use it to fund missionaries. We use it to fund church planters. We use it to fund the ongoing mission and work of Christ to make disciples among all nations. And so maybe, maybe today is a time where you have to really ask yourself, have I been giving like Mary has been giving? Or I've been holding back and hoarding and keeping to myself. Give as an act of worship. Don't give for my sake or anyone else in this room. It's for Christ alone. And so I want you to pray together. Respond when you are ready. And then we will close in singing together.